Um, good morning, everybody. It's really cool to be back. And as I told the first service, it's weird because about half of you have no idea who I am, and I'm just <clears throat> the dreaded guest speaker. Uh, the other half I have some kind of a relationship with. Some of you even really close friends, and I know you ask me from time to time how are things going at branches and, and what's happening. And so as I thought about what to share this morning, Russ and Kevin asked me a few months ago, and I thought, why don't I just share things I've learned in the past two and a half years since I've left? Um, that way, for those of you who are wondering what the heck is happening way up north or in Canada, as some of you like to joke around, um, it's really not that far north, by the way. Uh, you will get a little uh, insight into that, and for others of you who have no idea who I am, hopefully you can learn something as well. And also, I won't tell you how many things I'm going to go over, because I know how some of your brains work. If I tell you I'm going to give you three things I've learned, and I take 15 minutes on the first one, you're calculating it's going to be 45 minutes, and I'm going to be late for lunch, and you don't listen anymore. So, just a serving of things I have learned, all right? The first one is this. I have learned that planting a church is a lot like dating. And I should specify, my experience of planting a church is a lot like my experience of dating. <laughs> this is how it goes. Before you're, when you're single, before you're dating maybe, or as you're dating, you write out a list, or you at least think of a list of things that you're looking for in a potential partner. And the list has all kinds of things, you know, obviously number one is he or she is hot. Um, number two is I'm attracted to him or her. Number three is he or her is beautiful. And then number four, they love Jesus and go to church and, you know, those kinds of things also. And there's this idea, though, ironically, as you're writing out these lists sometimes, or at least thinking about them, you're sometimes convincing yourself that this person actually exists. So it, it's kind of like, man, I'm writing this out, or I'm thinking about it, and I really hope this person is out there somewhere. And it's very similar in planting a church. And it was maybe three years ago, before we had planted, we wrote out a very short We Believe statement, which doesn't have much on it. But it started with the statement, We believe the church is beautiful. And at the time that we wrote it, I wasn't sure I actually did believe the church was beautiful. But I hoped it was. And so it was almost this expectation of, oh, I hope this, we believe the church is beautiful, kind of calls us into be beautiful, and that that person really does exist. But I'm not sure it does. So the metaphor continues. We eventually had our first Sunday, and on the first Sunday, I got up and I literally said, man, this feels exactly like a first date. There's that awkward you know, I don't really know you, you don't really know me, I can't wait until we've had three or four dates where we actually do know each other and we can speak as normal human beings instead of like playing this, Ooh, here's my best, here's your best, hey, okay. Um, so, you know, you really just, oh, I want to just get through this awkward phase because, as I said on that first Sunday, I do feel like this has potential. It's a pretty good first date. I'm getting a good vibe, I hope you're getting a good vibe. And, man, I hope this goes somewhere. So we begin this relationship, and I would say it often. I ran into some of you at various spots, like, how's Branches? And I would say, oh, I love it. I love Branches. It's so great. And as I look back, I said I love Branches in a similar fashion to a sophomore in high school who says they love their girlfriend. 
You're like, I just love it. And if you're older and wiser, as I look back, some of you are like, mm, that's cute. That's cute. Yeah. That's sweet, Ryan. Someday you'll learn. And so it was this puppy love thing. I just ran around. I was like, oh, I love branches. It's so great. It's so beautiful. Oh. And then maybe last summer, about a year and a half in, I remember I was with Kevin, and, he, and we were in conversation, and it spilled out of me. How's branches? And I said, oh, I love branches. But it meant a completely different thing. And uh, Wendell Berry has that great quote about complexity and simplicity. Wouldn't give a fig for simplicity on this side of complexity. I would give my life for simplicity on the other side of complexity. Or you ask a 15-year-old girl, hey, how's life? And she says, life is hard. And you go, okay, yeah, that's great. You ask an 88-year-old woman, how's life? And she says, life is hard. And you say, whoa, tell me more. There's the, the same words, but on this side, they mean something completely different. And so I started to kind of move over to this side. And when I said I love branches, it became something a lot more on this side of complex. Now, I'm still early on, and maybe five years from now, I'll laugh at myself at my love now. But I happen to think it's growing a little more and getting a little deeper. And last summer on our two-year anniversary, I said to everyone there, hey, I think we should be married. I think this is for real. Let's commit. And it was in jest, but there was also something kind of beautiful about it. Of Hey, I, this is a real, true relationship. And of course, then what happens is, when you say you're going to get married, the metaphor continues, well, are you going to have kids? And this is a very personal question. You know, you don't just ask someone. It's the, it's the thing the father-in-law does at the bad wedding, you know. When are the grandkids coming? Now that you're married. So it's very much, you know, I don't know when we're going to have kids. We want to have kids someday, but it's a private affair for us, okay? Um, but it, it really does kind of bring out this idea of when are we going to plan a church? I don't know. It's, it's in us, and hopefully it will come someday. Which brings me to you, because this place has had a lot of kids. And you have apparently a very hot relationship. But, um, I mean, things are happening here. And there is a thing with kids. I happen to have a 16-year-old who's now driving, which is weird and cool. Um, but you put a lot of work and effort and time into kids. And you value kids, and you look at them with this pride and this respect and this, this joy and, wow, and then I can only imagine, I've heard stories, those children leave the house. And it's a hard thing. And you've been through it many times here. One, I was one of those children who left the house, and I'm home for the holidays, I guess, today. But there's this pain that comes with it. Uh, it's a change. and any change, there's loss. And so you, you grieve it, and it hurts a little. And you had another child leave last weekend. And... Bye-bye, and this time, this effort, and you're so proud, and yet, oh, it kind of hurts. And so I would just say to you, maybe as you're in this new phase of life, and maybe you'll have more kids down the line, I won't ask, but you're in a little bit of an empty nest, and maybe you just love each other a little bit more for this, this period of time. And I don't want to speak for Kevin and Russ, but I would say I bet they carry it a little more than you do. Uh, I know I grieved when I left, and I know it was tough. I love those guys. We had a relationship, and to just leave is hard. So maybe show a little more love for them, show a little more love for each other, 
And who knows what the future will hold, but maybe there are more kids down the line. All right, that's the first one. Second one is this. I have learned that the church is beautiful. And that statement we said, we believe the church is beautiful, I now know it to be true. And believe and know are, are different words. You know, I used to believe that you should bend your knees when you ski. Sounded like a good idea. I now know that you bend your knees when you ski. Because it just makes it work. And now I tell other people, and they say, oh, yeah, you should do that. But they don't know it because they haven't felt it in that groove and that rhythm. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know I have to bend my knees. And if you came to me and said, well, I don't think you should bend your knees when you ski, I would say, you've never skied. And if you come to me now and you say, you know, I don't think the church is beautiful, I would probably say to you, I don't know if you've ever experienced the church. Because it's It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I could tell you stories. I now know there are stories. I, we have a single guy who the entire community surrounded him in different ways, from lawyers to money to time to watching kids. And this guy's life was on this trajectory, and it turned around this way. And it's a miracle. There's no other way to describe it. Uh, we have a, a girl that just started coming this fall, and she was on the bridge every night this summer, ready to jump. She came to branches on a Sunday when we didn't have any sermon, which says something about my preaching. And her whole life changed and turned around. She ended up getting lung cancer in her early 20s and walking through her. And she's now moving this direction. And you just say, the church is beautiful. There are miracles happening. And branches by no means is the only place or church where these miracles are happening. They are all over the place, and they're happening everywhere. And for us to put on that cynical bitterness and choose to just not see these miracles and these stories for what they are and go to all of the bad, it's just not interesting for me anymore. It really isn't. I, the, the church I know is beautiful, and it's amazing, and I'm proud of it. And I love her in a way that I didn't think I would for a very long time, maybe ever. So I just say to you, the church is beautiful. And for those of you who, you just can't go there. I might just say this. I've learned this more recently. We often don't see the world for what it is, or people for who they are. We see them for what we are. And I might say, if you're a person who can't say the church is beautiful, it might speak more to your heart than what the church is doing. And I would encourage you to find a way to maybe clean that window. You know, there's these windows we look out at the world, and there's beautiful scenes, and the window is clouded with rain, and we just think the world is ugly. Maybe find a way to clean that window so that you find the beauty in the church again, because I know without a doubt that it is, and I want more of that. All right, number three. This one, um, it didn't surprise me, but I learned that my wife is more incredible than I thought, which I thought my wife was pretty darn incredible. So to learn that she was even more was wow. And, and I would say my wife has made me the pastor I am today. And it's interesting as I've found and gotten to know more and more pastors, many of whom I respect a ton and look up to, one common denominator is, oh, my, my wife makes me who I am. I mean, my wife, I can tell you stories. And wives have been described as the rudder of a ship. You know, we see these massive 
aircraft carrier, battleship, take your pick. And we're so, wow, look at the guns and the windows and the planes and the engines. And yet this little rudder determines where the ship goes. But we don't really talk about the rudder. I'm more into airplanes, so I view wives as maybe an aileron, which most of you are like, what is that? Again, we get on the plane, and it's the engines and the in-flight entertainment and the seats and the windows and the big giant wings and the landing gear, and yet these little pieces of the plane determine where we go and whether we land or not. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty wild stuff. So I say that only to encourage you. I know Shannon, and I know Grace, and I know they're amazing women, and I know that women often aren't noticed. And I would encourage you to notice them. We've got two amazing pastors here, incredible men, and I know that their wives play a huge part of that. And it's so easy. And it's actually really fun to be the guest pastor because I can say stuff like this to you. Um, but it's really easy to just put all the attention on those guys and to ignore the wives. And I know for female pastors, I would assume they'd say the same thing about their husbands, but just make sure you say, I love you and appreciate you and I'm proud of you to Shannon and Grace for all that they do that you may not see. They may be steering this thing more than you think. Um, number four, Lent. I have come to appreciate the season of Lent a lot. Maybe more than any other season. I found this special thing about it. And I used to think it was just because I liked the depressing, kind of darker moments of life. I grew up a big fan of Depeche Mode. And, I mean, Violator, I've listened to that album more than any other album. And it's still, I'm just in the mood to hear that in the low voice and just kind of feel dark and depressed and look around at the world and say, it's dark, all right? Kind of lean into that. And uh, that's okay. It's part of my personality. I mean, Darth Vader is always the cool guy, way more cool than Luke. I mean, Darth Vader has this incredibly grungy voice and this black uniform, and Luke, you know, comes prancing around in his little, like, tights with his land speeder. It's like, come on. I mean, Darth Vader would crush Luke in a real world. And there's something just cool about this darkness. And that's why I love Batman, by the way, because Batman dresses like the bad guy, but he's the good guy. All black. You know, it's just, there's something about that. So I thought, that's why I like Lent. And I never practiced Lent growing up, until we got to New Community, actually. But in the last couple years, I have found, there's a favorite quote of mine now that says, a certain beauty finds itself in the darkness. And I have come to appreciate the beauty that finds itself in the darkness of Lent. In fact, one of the things that made me fall in love with branches more than ever was last year at this time, we were entering into Lent. Maybe we were actually in the middle of it. And we had a Sunday where we cleared out all the chairs. We had no chairs in the room, which made some people walk in and leave immediately. And we had these blackboards in the middle of the room. And we had a Sunday where it was entirely music, and people would come and simply write down frustrations, anger, doubts. Uh, I mean, we said, go crazy. If you're mad at God, write it down. If you're mad at why this happened, write it down. If you're mad at why you have cancer or why your daughter or son does or whatever it is, lament and grieve and express it. And when it first started, it was one of those where I just thought, oh gosh, this is a disaster. This is the worst thing I've ever done. 
And by the end of it, I was, I don't know if anybody wasn't crying. Uh, you'd walk by these boards and people just stayed afterward and it was almost like being in a museum where you're just walking and reading these boards and you're reading of the hurt and the pain and the, the frustration that was in this community where we all come in and smile every morning or every week. And it's just this, whoa, whoa, I want to walk alongside these people. How do we help? How do we do this together? It was one of those just beautiful, beautiful mornings. And I think Lent played a huge part of that. Has anyone read Brave New World? Has anyone read it outside of high school? Yeah, not many of you. In high school, it's just one of those books that you don't love because it's the classic. I encourage you to read it again. I just read it a couple weeks ago, and oh, what a powerful story. And I won't blow it, but I'll just tell you this. The gist of it is a future world where happiness is the number one thing. That's it. The number one goal of society is to make everyone happy. And they go to great lengths to make sure that everyone is happy and there's no sadness. And this one character is called the Savage, lives the way people used to live. And people will go and visit almost like a zoo and look at this way that they live. And the Savage ends up entering into this world where everyone is happy. And towards the end of the, end of the book, the Savage makes this line of, you need tears for a change. You need tears for a change. You need something to cost. And that is what I love about Lent. It reminds us of the cost. It reminds us of the tears. It reminds us that life is hard. It reminds us that things don't always go the way we want them to go, and there's a cost to being in a community together. There's a cost to saying, when you mourn, I will mourn. There's a cost to saying, how can I help you? There's a cost to following Jesus. And yet, as you go through this cost... Wow, what a beauty emerges from it. So I would encourage you, this Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. I would dive in, dive into it. It can be an amazing six weeks of finding just a new angle or a new perspective on God. Oh, number five. The, this is a very personal one, but I'll share it. The Catholic mystics are an underused resource in the Protestant church. Uh, Anthony DeMello, Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr. These guys have changed my faith. And I can say I was maybe at a point where I wasn't sure that the dominant form of Christianity was something I wanted any longer. I don't think that's too dramatic to say. And I, I may have just been done with the whole thing, except I found these mystics. And I don't know why we, we run from them, maybe because they're Catholic, maybe because they're mystics, and when you combine the two words, it's just, oh gosh... Stay away. Uh, but these, these guys, their writings, their talks have given me such a new perspective and outlook on Jesus, on life, on freedom, on who I am, on how to read the Bible, on how to handle criticism, on so many things that I am so grateful for. And I, it's a short one, but I only say if you've never given them the time of day, you may not fall in love with them, but I would encourage you, give them a read. These men were, I don't know how you can read them and say they weren't men of God. And men who knew Jesus, didn't just believe. They knew Jesus and walked with Jesus. And walked in a way that's up here and where I want to walk. 
It's a, a beautiful thing to see. Uh, number six. This one is an interesting one. It's, it's kind of a little insight into the pastor fraternity. Five years ago, it was almost five years ago exactly, I was on this stage and I gave arguably my first sermon ever, which is crazy what can happen in five years. I was a video game designer, and my dad was a pastor, so I kind of knew a little into the pastor world, but you're still kind of, what is the pastor world really like? I mean, what do those guys, what do those women do? What do they talk about? And so I still consider myself almost more of a video game designer than a pastor because it's just weird for me to be called a pastor. I'm still young in it. And so I viewed it as, oh, man, I get to go dive into this world and find out what they're all talking about now. And I've been to a lot of conferences. I've been to a lot of small groups. I've been to a lot of lunches with pastors of all kinds. And I'll tell you this. A lot of pastors are not happy. And it makes me really sad. I don't want to say all of them. Um, I'm painting a broad stroke here. But a lot of pastors just aren't happy. And some pastors are officially depressed. And it's not just in Spokane. I mean, I've literally been around the country with different pastors, and it's almost the same story over and over. And it makes me really sad. For one, I don't want to be that. I mean, I find myself sometimes just saying, oh, sorry, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy, actually. I really love my church. I'm sorry. Don't hate me. And I feel guilty. I'm like, is this where I'm headed? And secondly, I think, man, these are the people that are leading Christianity into the new age. And, whoa, what's it going to be? This doesn't bring me the, the best feeling. And, you know, I've, I've really tried to find out why. What is wrong? And one reason is just ridiculous. Pastors literally have board meetings about carpet color and donuts. Donut or muffins. And churches split over this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just, it's absurd. And I almost say, okay, that's just so absurd that I don't even know how to deal with it. I'm just going to kind of ignore that one. That's crazy. I've told so many pastors, if I was in your job a week, I would quit. I don't know if that makes them feel better or worse, but um, I, I, I can't help but say, like, how do you handle that? But another main reason is so many pastors feel like they have to wear masks. And they'll, they'll use this language. And they'll say, you know, I mean, to this group, this little group here, I can tell you that I'm, I'm not sure about creation and evolution. I think I'm leaning toward evolution. I can tell you the penal substitutionary atonement theory. I mean, yeah, I, it's, I don't know what I think of it. But, I mean, I would never say that to my church. I could never say that to them. You couldn't? I bet a lot of them agree with you. Or maybe not, but why not have the conversation? And it's frightening how many pastors feel like they have to go up and just be someone different. I don't think that happens here. I know this place, but it does happen at a lot of churches. It's frightening. And then finally, pastors are just tired. And they're not tired from overwork. They're tired from politics and criticism and all of the church junk. So I only say all of this, again, I can be an outsider now, and I love Russ and Kevin so much. I tell you, make sure you love them. Make sure you appreciate them. And I don't know exactly what that means, because it's probably different for every context. But I'll, I'll maybe tell you two things. Make sure that they have friends, and you need to hold them accountable. 
pastors do a really good job of hanging out with people that are called friends, but they're actually ministry, because all pastors do is pour into them. And it's, do you have friends? Oh, yeah, I've got tons of friends. Yeah, I mean, I'm always having a small group at my house every night. It's so fun. It is. Make sure there are people in their lives that just pour into them and they don't expect anything in return. And, and secondly, make sure that they're honest and can be. And make sure when you go to coffee with them, you say, hey, wait, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. No, 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 I, I mean it. How are you doing? I was just with a guy between services and he said he was a pastor for many years. And he said, Ryan, I, I lied to everyone. I wasn't ever doing fine, and I told everyone I was doing fine, and I eventually, it, it cost me everything. <laughs> Whoa. So make sure they're honest, and they're able to be honest, and you make them be honest. Okay, final one. It's out of the Bible. Yes, I still do believe in the Bible, and I love it. Uh, John 14. This has become one of my favorite passages. We just finished a year of John which was long. Um, and I said I would never do a year-long sermon series, but we did. And actually, it, it was long, but it was pretty amazing. And the more I studied John, the more I realized John is a mystic. Yeah, you don't have to be scared of mystics. John was one. And so was Jesus, pretty much. So really, don't be scared of it. I mean, they talk in these like, what are you saying? Ah, mystic, I got you. Okay, I got you. And once you come with that mindset, you're like, oh, man, this stuff rolls. This is good stuff. Uh, John 14 is toward the end before Jesus is arrested. And it's these three chapters of red ink. Jesus gives this kind of final sermon or speech to the disciples. And there's no parables. There's no stories. I mean, this is just straight up gold from Jesus. Chapter 14, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Kind of goes through this thing as if you've seen me, you've seen God. And the disciples are, whoa, where's God? Like, no, guys, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And then verse 12, he gets to this verse that has become one of my favorites. Jesus speaking, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Now, you have to step back for a second. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, looking them in the eye, these disciples who've been through it all with Jesus. Guys, you're going to do even greater things than I've been doing. Greater things? I mean, we've seen you turn water into wine. We've seen you walk on water. We've seen you feed thousands of people. We've seen you talk to this Samaritan woman in this revolutionary way. We've seen you talk to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in this revolutionary way. We've seen you heal paralytics. We've seen you heal women bleeding. We've seen you raise people from the dead. We're going to do greater things than that? Guys, you will do even greater things than me. Whoa! I mean, I wish there was more on what the disciples said. Well, Jesus, I, uh, let's be honest here. No, no, no. And, and it brought up, I've never put it to words, but it's something I've learned recently. I grew up with a great faith in God, which I'm very thankful for. A tremendous faith that God will do things. And the Bible is about God doing things and us having faith in God. But there's another side to it 
that I had lost completely. And that is God's faith in us. And the Bible is also many stories about God's faith in us, including this one. You will do greater things. In Genesis, I've blessed you so you bless the nations of the earth. You are the body of Christ. I mean, these things, oh yeah, isn't that cute? No, it's incredible. We are the body of Christ? God, you trust us to do this? Oh yeah, I have faith in you. I'll look you in the eyes and say you'll do greater things. It's this amazing thing that I think we've lost in the church a little bit. We're, we're very good in the church, or some churches, in reminding everyone of what they're not. And reminding everyone how crappy, to use the word, humans are. And they are. And then we're shocked when people grow up and they're pretty crappy and they hate the church. That's all you ever told me I was. And where in the church do we remind people that Jesus said, you will do greater things than me? We will? Oh, yeah. It's not about this. It's about calling us into this. This is what God believes about you, the body of Christ. Greater things. What are we doing? Let's go. Just a few things. Some of you get a little nervous, that kind of language. This is, this is not about us being Jesus. Jesus didn't say, you'll be equal with me. I'm not saying we're all going to be little Jesus. Uh, well, somewhat I'm saying that, but not sons of God walking around. Jesus there, they always set out an order of God, humans, nature, and we're in this. And when we mix that up, there's trouble. So this is not about Jesus saying, hey, you're all going to be little gods. This is not about Jesus saying you're going to be rich and famous because Jesus wasn't rich and famous at all. In fact, he was the opposite of it. And this isn't about everyone. I'm not saying every human, just every human's doing great things if you just see the world right, man. No, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you will do greater things. And I love Dan's group name, Transformers, because this, this is the gospel, right? We believe we become new people. Or at least that's what the Bible says. We get new hearts, new souls. We're a new creation. And it's this new creation that God says will do new amazing things. I believe in you. The rapper Common, um, I often quote rappers somehow. They have amazing things to say if you can just get past all the bad language. Common says, they'll hear your soul if you're using it. And it struck me. Wow, they'll hear your soul if you're using it. And it struck me because so many Christians don't use their soul. This new soul that's been transformed and has the power to bring the kingdom of God to earth and change the world. But we don't use it. And I'm saying God has faith in you to use it and to do amazing things. And part of the reason I believe the church is beautiful is because I've seen humans do amazing things. I'm blown away at their sacrifice, at their generosity, at their giving of time, at their patience, at their mercy, at their forgiveness, at their challenging of me in loving ways, at their love. And I, I give the glory to God because God comes and says, I will transform you. And then if you read this passage, it's really cool because the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is who I will give you to help you do this. We've talked about the Holy Spirit in a lot of ways, but very rarely the Holy Spirit will come and enable you to do greater things. 
pretty cool stuff. Uh, that's it. I have one more, and that's this one. I had a list of maybe 25 things I could have shared with you of that I've learned in the past two and a half years. And I don't say that to act like I know a lot now. I say that as frightening that two and a half years ago I thought I knew a lot. And I was writing them down just saying, wow, I really didn't know anything. And what does that mean now? Two and a half years from now, am I going to write, we'll come back here and say, oh, wait, I got a whole new list of things. And this to me is the adventure of walking with God in life. I love to learn. I love to be humbled. And I love that God is always teaching me new and beautiful and miraculous things. And I hope we all are as well. Let's pray.